Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, for the first time on the show today, we are thrilled to be joined by Ufrida Ho, who's a freelance journalist also based in Johannesburg. And we're going to talk a little bit about Ufrida's uh, a, 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 an essay and a column that she wrote for the Times in, in South Africa. Uh, but first, we'll get to some. We want to kind of get to have some fun before we get started. So, Ufrida, thank you so much for being on the show. We're really looking forward to talking with you. Great, Eric. Thank you. And uh, you know, Kobus, it's not that often that, you know, China-Africa kind of pops its head out of the little niche that we occupy or the academic kind of geekiness that typically kind of celebrates China-Africa relations and pops into the mainstream. Well, last Sunday on American television, this was in mid-January, on primetime American TV Sunday nights, there's a show called Madam Secretary, which is with uh, starring Taya Leone. And for those of you who uh, grew up in the 80s. I think Taylor Leone was kind of very popular back then, or the 90s, I should say. Uh, and she's now the Secretary of State on primetime American television. Lo and behold, in this most recent episode, uh, China-Africa relations became the first, uh, became the subject of the show. And what I think, Kobus, is so interesting, and you as a student and a scholar of media relations and media studies, in some ways, when primetime television in any country kind of takes on an issue, it amplifies, I think, the ideals and the stereotypes and the caricatures of how a country sees itself. And so I'm going to play a few sound bites uh, from this show, and then I'd like to get both of your reactions and your comments on it. So let me set up the first one. The first one is, so the U.S. Secretary of State, played by Taylor Leone, she is off to Africa. And she's off to Africa to announce all of these, what, what else, these charitable projects, these clean water, clean energy, these uh, science and technology education for girls' education, because that's what Americans do in Africa. Well, she meets with the Senegalese uh, prime minister or president. I'm not sure they didn't specify. Uh, and, 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 and kind of finds out that she's not alone in Africa in meeting with him. President Diome, all of the legwork on the solar farm has been done. Why on earth would you turn around and give the contract to the Chinese? They offered us better terms. Let me guess. No money down in exchange for exclusive rights to your, what, titanium reserves? The oil and gas fields recently discovered off our coast, actually. China's been making these deals all over Africa. They rarely work out well for the host nation. You know that. The Chinese will import their own workers to build the solar farm. And then most likely, they won't train local engineers to maintain it once they're gone. So you're looking at five years max of actual use in exchange for decades of unfavorable terms on the oil field. Yes, but Senegal is booming. We're building an entirely new city outside of our capital. We need electricity today. China can offer that. You're right. Senegal is booming. That is why the United States wants to invest in diversifying your economy and your workforce. Then why didn't your Congress fund the project fully? Foreign Minister Chen assured me that China has no such problems with cash flow. When did you speak with Minister Chen? Came to town yesterday. Oh, 
There we go, Cobus. <laughs> Wrapped up in a minute soundbite from primetime American television is literally every great cliche about U.S.-China-Africa relations. Uh, what was your first kind of reaction listening to that, to the Senegalese president dealing with the fictitious American Secretary of State? It struck me as already being nostalgic. It it already feels like a throwback to the past. Um, it, it feels like Obama era, you know, kind of relations already. And, and it's kind of like sets it in amber um, because that is the way that the Obama administration narrated America's place in, in you know, U.S.-China-Africa relations. I think, you know, just for the record, we're recording on the day before Donald Trump's inauguration. Um, and, you know, who knows? I mean, who knows where we'll be by the time people listen to this. But um, the, you know, kind of the, the, Trump, the, the Trump transition team is so far, the, the kind of noises they've been making about Africa so far has been very pro-business. Um, so, you know, and I can well imagine that there's less enthusiasm in the Trump transition team for this kind of traditional Obama you know, kind of style, do-gooding, you know, kind of investment. Um, to the extent that that actually happened, which I think was was more limited than than the Obama administration wanted to to project. So, yeah, it, it already feels nostalgic. It already feels like a year ago, actually. What do you think? I, I Yeah, Ufrida, I, I go with the line, it's delusional. And Americans like to think of themselves one way but behave another and, and we really like to think that we're on the side of angels in a place like Africa, when in fact, you know, 25% of the USAID budget, at least a few years ago, I'm not sure where it is today, but at least a few years ago was spent on military. American oil is a very big presence in Africa. And we have this naive notion that we're, we're there, you know, to do good. Yeah, to We're on the side of good. <laughs> You know, Ufrida, you know, when you hear this kind of pop culture kind of take on China-Africa relations, do you recognize it? Yeah, I think, as you said, it's um, all the stereotypes played out in a little soundbite. And, um, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not that uh, I think China is a, is an angel itself, but I think it suits, um, it was quite funny, I was actually in a meeting yesterday with Gwedi Mantashi and a, and a delegation around the whole Taiwan Chinese, uh, China story. And that one of the comments that he made was he said, um, about the Trump presidency and, and how much trouble that would be for China. And that that's a direct quote. So um, I think both are um, eyeing out uh, Africa, I think. Um, and, I, and I think that using pop culture and using a TV series is very clever, actually. Um, but yeah. I think we do know better. We do know better that, uh, that uh, if we're going to drive a stronger Africa-centric sort of push We've got to. We've got to be the people who who should be pushing, not 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 America or China. It's it's got to come from Africa. So though I always look at. I mean, I listen to that, and it is it is worth a, a giggle. Uh, but it's passed off as facts, probably. Yeah. For people who've also voted in the president who ran a reality show. So. Well, let's continue with our little drama here because most people outside the U.S. can't watch this show. And I've got two more sound bites that I'd like to kind of play just because I think it's fun. And it's so rare, again, that China-Africa mm. relations make it into, into primetime television. So we're continuing our drama. Basically, the U.S. Secretary of State and the Chinese Foreign Minister are crisscrossing each other in Africa in an attempt to kind of outdo one another for the love of different African leaders from Togo to Nigeria and in and, 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 and all points in between. Well, at one point, imagine this, you know, of all places, the Chinese foreign minister 
and the American Secretary of State find themselves in a crowded bar. Really, this is how it plays out. Recently offering Senegal and Nigeria competitive deals for the benefit of both parties. So if they get a wind farm, you get 100-year leases on oil and gas. Sounds fair. At least they get the wind farm instead of empty promises and hypocritical lecturing from Western countries who have undermined Africa. The United States is trying very hard to turn the page and be a force for constructive engagement, cleaner energy, economic diversification, and greater transparency, educating and empowering women and girls. Spare me your idealism. More importantly, spare Africa. I lived through the Cultural Revolution. My father was not so lucky. Idealism kills. Mutual interests save lives. Okay. Well, that point, Cobus, actually was very revealing here, where I think in some ways that does reflect a little bit of the reality that the Chinese aren't as idealistic in some ways uh, as the Americans are. They are more pragmatic. But at the same time, the Chinese have this other form of propaganda, which is this win-win development. We're all, you know, together as people of the developing world against the, you know, the, the you know, the European and the American powers. But I still think that the American line there is is just delusional. It's also there's a there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff to unpack about America itself here. Um, you know, because as you say, this this idealism is happening against the background of of, of very kind of hard nosed business practices, American business practices in Africa, frequently you know to to the detriment of of actual African populations. So. It's like, what's the basis of that idealism? There, there is a feeling of, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it becomes very psycho, psycho, psychological. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like a kind of a, it's a kind of a delusion, I guess. But it's also, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like a kind of rhetorical game that's being played, um, where the Americans just assume this position and then kind of move from there, um, and and you kind of left to to wonder all the time. Okay, so what's really happening? To which extent is this based in anything? What about Africa? What is the African side in all of this? And so on. It becomes very Hall of Mirrors-y for me. Yeah, Uvrida, I have a feeling on this eve of the Trump inauguration that that idealism will go away pretty quickly. In fact, uh, you know, there was a survey that was sent to the State Department from the Trump transition team uh, last week. And it was saying, uh, you know, one of the top questions was, is the United, is American business being outdone by Chinese business? And again, it was very interesting to kind of see how the Americans are looking, or at least the Trump administration, in a very transactional way. And if you look at Africa in a transactional way, well, it's a pretty small market, you know, as transactions go globally. And so, again, it gives you this indication that the reality and the perception will, will be very different maybe in the new Trump era that's coming. You know, I don't know. I don't know about. Um, I'm. I think it's. I don't know about the the survey that you. What were the findings of the survey? Have they? Got well, they don't release them. These were questions that the Trump administration or the the, the Trump transition team sent to the U.S. State Department, asking. Uh, questions and it was it was a two or three page you know and it really gave the first indication of what the new administration kind of thinks or the direction that they're going in vis-a-vis -vis Africa policy. It was questioning AGOA, which we had thought that maybe the African Growth and Opportunity Act that allows for free trade from Africa to the United States might be off the table because it's relatively small compared to NAFTA. 
Uh, it mm. questioned whether American aid is actually working. It questioned if Al Shabaab in Somalia, you know, is is still at you know still fighting. Has American been effective? American forces been effective there? So it was very very cynical and very very negative. In sharp contrast to the to the propaganda tone that we see in this uh, in, in this primetime television show. I guess then maybe 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 I mean I don't know which way it's going to go or what what we're in for, but. Um, Perhaps if if I guess if you put um, a Trump administration against uh, their new whatever they whatever agenda they're going to drive and whatever China continues to do in Africa, um, maybe it actually opens up a a little bit of a window for for Africa to actually negotiate differently. Um, but I, I really don't know enough, and I don't um, and I guess sure, a lot sure. of us are also sitting guessing what's going to happen. But yeah, I think we all are. You know, going to be. Yeah, I was about to say you're not alone. Yeah, um, Ufrida, do you get do you get uh, any kind of indication of both where the South African Chinese community and the South African government are standing in relation to changes between the U.S. and China in uh, you know in South Africa? Are you getting any kind of clues about how the Chinese community in South Africa are preparing themselves for for this kind of future, or are they not really taking notice of it as far as you see? As far as I, you know, it was just like I said. Um Yesterday they held a uh, there's a meeting because of the the whole um, the mayor's visit to Taipei the the Shwani mayor's visit to Taipei a delegation organized a meeting with um, at Lutuli House with the uh, Gwedi Mantashe and Edwin Mulewa and a couple of can other you people. I'm sorry can you just explain who those people are just for some of our listeners who may not be familiar so uh, Gwedi Mantashe is the uh, secretary general of the ANC. And Which is the ruling party in South the Africa. Ruling party in South Africa, and so very and Lutuli House is the is the the Johannesburg headquarters of the African National Congress, which is the ruling party in South Africa. Yeah, so very significant that um, that they could basically call a meeting and have an audience with such a um, with the with the with the the, the top dog, the 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 Secretary General, um, and the only the only thing that came up re- literally was. This thing, his comment, Gwedi Mantashi's comment about about America being uh, the Trump administration being a problem for China, and then um, one of the participants, uh, Jonathan Shen, who's part of a Shanghai industrial association in Southern Africa, basically said it's because they don't want to they don't want to see China being great, which I thought was just was just little throwaway comments you know that they were saying and I thought that was quite interesting but um, I haven't really picked up anything Corbis, um per se about um, a, f- a fear specifically around the Trump administration so so their comment you you interpreted as that they um, that they that they see it as attempts from the US to try and contain China mm. in Africa mm. 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 and um yeah, I don't know. You know, it was just, and remember, you know, it's um, and I think we'll we'll get to that when we talk that uh, a little bit about this Taiwanese thing. There's a the, the my sense actually is that the the Chinese in South Africa right now it's quite a fractured. They speak from very different um, groupings. You know, um, that they have 105 associations that this delegation doesn't represent. Um, the they represent one one sector, one segment, one association. Yet they have this audience with the top-ranking ruling party officials. Um, 
quite interesting that, that that whole dynamic that's happening and that the ANC I think kept asking about their can their ward candidate who stood um, in the elections last year and that person actually by their own admission is a rival to this party this delegation of Chinese um, who went along to the ANC yeah, this is this is Let something me. that I that I find so sorry, Eric. This is something that I find fascinating about South African, you know, Chinese communities is a as you say the the incredible fractured nature of it, where there's they're definitely not speaking with one voice, mm-hmm. and then you know, kind of the hard work that they put into making connections with prominent politicians and very successful connections to, to the extent that I've seen. Let me just back up a little bit so I can kind of set the table here so that when we get into the discussion about Ufrida's article. So, you know, earlier, I think, correct me, it was on January 3rd, if I'm if I'm correct, at the beginning of the year, uh, Pretorius Mayor uh, Soli Mashenga, tell me how to pronounce it properly. Mzimanga. Mzimanga. Okay, I completely missed that one. Uh, went to Taiwan. And now it's interesting because he is a member of the Opposition Democratic Alliance, uh, opposition to the ANC. And he met with uh, Taipei Mayor Ko Wenjie. And, and that really, at that point, hit the raw open nerve of, of China's, China's foreign policy. Because China has something called the One China Policy. And this is something that Donald Trump, bringing it back to the Americans, is openly challenging now and openly questioning on television about whether or not China is just one. And what the One China Policy means is that there is unification between Taiwan and China and that Taiwan is a part of China that is indisputable in international law according to the mainland Chinese. Now, those in Taiwan have a very, very different view, particularly the current uh, president, Tsai Ing-wen, who is part of the DPP, which is the opposition party, which has more independent-oriented policies. And again, it's not a – these aren't clear lines. And just for those of you not familiar with why this is so sensitive, was that Taiwan and China separated uh, after the 1949 uh, civil war and the Republicans went to and the Kuomintang went to Taiwan and the communists of course took over mainland China. So anybody that steps in the middle of those two becomes you know embroiled in very very complicated politics and I think a lot of us on the outside looking at the Pretoria mayor's visit and even Donald Trump's taking of the phone call wondered if they knew what they were getting themselves into and so I said Ufrida kind of back up a little bit and talk to us about what were the motivations, in your opinion, for Sully's visit to Taipei? What was he trying to telegraph either to the Chinese or more likely to Jacob Zuma and the ANC? Mm, I think it was a it was a um, big middle finger to the ANC. Um, uh, I think also that uh, there's a lot of uh, the Democratic Alliance has quite a number of Taiwanese members who actually uh, became uh, DA um, officials, so these there are those sort of ties as well. But I think it was a middle finger to the ruling party. It was provocation, um, but maybe also they have these older ties with the Taiwanese community in South Africa when they arrived um, by the seventies and eighties. They were in South Africa, so yeah. But I mean, the, I mean, his his official line uh, was that it was for um, ex exploration it was trying to um, build ties build bridges and so yeah um, and he also said that he didn't take it in in 
in his uh, official capacity and that it didn't cost taxpayers any money to to get him to Taipei. And Kobus, what's your take on why he did it? I mean, it um, you know, again, it's such a sensitive issue here. Yes, it is an extremely sensitive issue. Um, the I, I think what well, the way I, I understood it originally was that we 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 see again a kind of a, a version of of a, a, a kind of political fight that you see in Africa quite often, where a, a ruling party's connection with China um, is used as a stick to beat it with. So China becomes a you know criticism of China becomes a. a implicit way of criticizing the ruling party. Um, and as Ufrida said, you know, kind of any kind of friendly gesture towards Taiwan becomes a hostile gesture to China and therefore a hostile gesture to the ruling African National Congress. Um, at the same time, um, Mzimanga then later made the point that a lot of South African officials have been traveling between back and forth between Taipei um, and, you know, and Pretoria um, and Johannesburg, and that he wasn't the only one. Um, and he threatened at some stage to, to publish a list of ANC officials who had been going back to back and forth to, to Taipei. So it seemed to me also that in the in this kind of heated climate that was, uh, you know, not kicked off by by Donald Trump's uh, phone call with Taiwan, but certainly ratcheted up by it. Um, you see a, a moment where Taipei. Both Taipei and, and Beijing, but especially the Beijing, is extremely sensitive about these things. And, you know, so it seemed to me that something that in, in a year or two ago might well have passed without much comment now suddenly became a big issue. Um, and that could, I, I assume that it, it was probably because of complaints from Beijing to the African National Congress. Um, Ufrida, was that your, your take as well? You know, yeah, I think I agree with you on that. It's, um, I mean, I really don't know what's what, um, what, why Missy Munger did it, but I, I do think that it was deliberate. It was, it, there was nothing, um, there was nothing not planned about that. So, I mean, how you, what you read into it is, I mean, it's just politics, and I think um, that's that's the. I think when I got that let, I got that letter, the the open letter that uh, the this Chinese. Uh, Simon Shi, like I said, I think it's mostly sort of the Shanghai-based associations. Um, when they started with this uh, this letter that they, this open letter to the Democratic Alliance, when they they literally phoned me on a Friday Friday night and said they have this letter and they need to get it into, um, into the press and they need to get it to the press um, as soon as possible. And I thought it was, uh, and I, I actually said to him because he he ended up phoning me over the weekend even and um, just really really angry. And I said, just explain to me why it's such a big issue. And um, and he said he had the support of over like 105 um, associations, and they continue to be really, really angry about it because I think for them, it's my sense is it's it's actually not just about the one China policy, but it's also something that goes against the ANC. And as uh, Chinese in South Africa who become aligned with the ANC, I think that's that's become a very important, um, a, a very important um, uh, principle to get behind for the for the Chinese who are now part of the part of the party, and that was real, real yeah, in that meeting. So yeah, but this is one of these issues, and it's hard to explain to outsiders. I always say that Taiwan is China's Jerusalem, and and what I mean by that is that they will walk 
into a burning hell. Sure. And they'll throw everything away to keep Taiwan as part of the mainland, in their view. And this is one of the few issues. You know, China is a massive country, uh, you know, first or second largest in the world, extremely diverse, 100 plus dialects, you know, I mean, just very little that people agree on from north to south, east to west. Taiwan being a part of China, everybody agrees on. And, it's, and I asked my professor when I was a graduate student in Beijing, I said, why would you throw everything away over Taiwan? Taiwan's a, a, an island of 22 million people. It's a tiny little economy relative to the Chinese economy. And he explained it to me this way. And he said, because if the Chinese president doesn't defend the one China policy, he has no legitimacy. And when he has no legitimacy, according to 5,000 years of Chinese history, the emperor falls. And so they've made this part of the national narrative, which is that if the empire is unified, it is strong. And if the periphery breaks away, as Chinese history is prone to do, then the emperor falls and disunity comes. And this is the same reason that, you know, the Dalai Lama is not allowed into South Africa. And, and, and it really, so for, for Chinese people who have been raised in this, mainland Chinese, mm. it's in their gut. From the pauper to the president, everybody agrees on this. So I think on one hand, it might be because of ANC loyalties, but my guess, and I saw this in the overseas Chinese community in Los Angeles and in New York as well, it, this is just, there is no other way. No, no, absolutely. Um, and they, you know, yeah. So yeah. just a little bit of background no, no. there. I didn't mean to, to uh, you know, that I, I, I said that, you know, like you said, it was, um, um, they, they used words like it causes us pain and it, it's, it yeah. hurts us. So, yes, I understand that it's, it's a, um, you know, when I asked him to explain, it was really for him to articulate that. But I think I absolutely agree with you. It's not, um, it's just that there's this extra layer around sort of like getting behind the ANC and being shown to get behind an, the ANC as well, which was very, very interesting. But yeah, no, I agree 100% with what you're saying. It's, it's something that is completely ingrained. Yeah. And, you know, Kobus, it's very interesting right now because this issue comes up just as Donald Trump himself is challenging the one China policy. So I imagine that the mood in Beijing right now is potentially quite defensive and in a crouch. This is not something they want to kind of fight with. But at the end of the day, the warnings now have come from Hua Chunyin, who is the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, making it very, very clear that if South Africa or if the United States want to start challenging the one-child policy, which South Africa does not, by the way, the ANC certainly does not. But if anybody wants to challenge the one-child policy, the one-China policy, um, it will not end well. And and I, you have to believe that threat. I mean, there's no two ways about it. You I know? Think, but I don't think in in South Africa there's a lot of sensitivity to that. Well, no, I think you know it's, it's obviously it's not not part of South Africa's horizon, but. You know, I, I think the, the ANC is certainly aware of it, um, and ruling parties across Africa is very aware of it. The way that, you know, the, the way that um, with no ceremony, the the Nigerian government kicked out the, the Taiwan liaison office out of Abuja to Lagos and downscaled it, you know, it immediately once, once you know, it became clear that that's what China wanted. Um, so, I, you know, I think African governments certainly know what's up. Um what I am wondering, actually, is, Ufrida, um, 
in how does this play play out in terms of the relationship between the Chinese South African community and the Taiwanese South African community? My impression as an outsider is that those that they are not necessarily because because they were different waves of migration. Um, you know, kind of people and the communities started, kicked off in South Africa at different times. They're not, you know, they're, they're, there's no coherent single Chinese speaking, even if you just look at language, Chinese community in South Africa. How did um, how do these party politics, or the South African party politics, political differences and these geopolitical differences, how do they play out in terms of the relationship between the Taiwanese community and Chinese communities in, in South Africa? You know, the I believe that the letter actually that was written to the, the open letter that was written to the uh, to the DA was actually um, edited for them by um, a, a local Chinese South African, and I thought that was quite interesting because I think the the Chinese South Africans have traditionally managed to actually keep both sides quite happy. Um, so I literally, have, I know of people like literally going off to. Um, one dinner that's been held by the Chinese and one that's been held by Taiwan and literally in the same week and trying to sort of like keep the relationships um, uh, friendly and uh, cozy on both sides. I don't think that the, the Chinese South Africans are really, um, really feel one way or the other about the reunification issue. Um, you know, our numbers are really, really tiny. And I guess that's why I put the question to him that sort of plainly just so that he could articulate it with that with exactly how Eric has spoken about it now why it's why it's such a deeply held um, issue for for the Chinese but um, I don't think the local Chinese are, are that involved I don't I haven't heard from the Taiwanese as well I think a lot of the Taiwanese just from that I have uh, connections with a lot of them actually are pro uh, uh, reunification so I'm quite interested in how it's playing out. And also the guy who wrote the letter, he said um, they actually have a lot of friendly relations with the Taiwanese associations. And of course, Chinatown has its own big Taiwanese community as well. So I don't know, quite interesting, but uh, I, yeah. I couldn't say for sure that uh, I've tested sort of like the, the sentiments on it enough to 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 have a, have more than that, um, that view. Sure. Uh, you, you titled your column in the Times as Chinese in SA in South Africa flexing muscles, or ah, the editor it. did it. it, 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 it uh, okay, but, but here's what you did do. Uh, let, let me read the conclusion here. And you said, the growing visibility of the community, its louder voice and its clear alignment to political power makes this story as much about an island in the South China Sea as it does about a community plotting its future in this corner of Africa. And I guess I'm curious because in other Chinese communities around the world, large ones, and, and I come from Los Angeles where, uh, and I've worked in the Chinese community there, the Chinese, when they express political power, particularly immigrants, often do it through money. They don't do it through their own political action. But I noticed in South Africa in recent elections there, the ANC has been putting up signs and marketing in Chinese um, in a way to get people more engaged politically. So do you see the Chinese community in Johannesburg and in Pretoria becoming more engaged in in real politics or is it just because of the business associations that they are supporting candidates through money and and, and other kinds of financial support? 
Mm, Eric, I would probably think it's both, you know, because I, I think that um, the, the there is a, a kind of expediency about using the political power to actually make sure you um, uh, bolster your economic interests. Um, that 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 that's almost like a natural um, connection point. But I think what's been quite interesting is that is this shift of um, of being of of really asserting their agenda because um, in the last election when they put forward a candidate to run in the local uh, uh, municipal elections, what was quite interesting was there was they went through the voters roll and they actually saw about 300 people. That's like nothing. 300 people who were eligible to vote in that one ward who were likely to vote for a Chinese candidate. And, and so in other words, Chinese um, citizens or residents who were eligible to vote in the, in the ward. But I think for me what it is, is, it's really about laying the foundation of what's to come. So for a maturing community, I mean, you suddenly realizing that you're not going to go back to China. You're very likely to stay in South Africa. You're very likely to build your business here. Your children are going to grow up to become, like I say, in that piece, the taxpayers and the voters um, as they as they themselves become uh, of age. And I think it's really, I think it's actually plotting those, plotting those sort of like um, elements to actually um, build a, a different kind of future for the Chinese who are going to stay here. And we could see it with the with the um, with with this alignment with the ANC, the different the different factions as well joining the ANC. Um, I think after that article, there was also a half-page ad that was taken out in the Star about a day or two later, and um, the, the the people behind the the letter to the DA they said it was uh, uh, placed in the newspaper by rivals. That's their word for this group. And I think sitting and then sitting in that meeting with the ANC, they were clearly had no clue. The ANC had no clue that there are these um, factions. They kept asking about the candidate um, who they see as a rival, which I found really, really fascinating. But there's very clearly, um, it's not just about using money to uh, to push forward whatever their interests are. I think there definitely is a far more um, public role, there's a, a more visible role and uh, it probably makes sense for a community that understands that it does actually have to protect its protect itself as it grows. Yeah. Kobus, who would have thought that a DA politician, Democrat, an opposition politician, a, a mayor of Pretoria would step into, you know, one child, one China, I keep saying one child, one China you know, the one China policy, and it becomes an international incident at the same time as Donald Trump is questioning that as well. And we're here we are on the eve. I mean, if you, you know, and then China-Africa relations makes it into primetime television. I mean, these are crazy times that we're in right now. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's, you know, kind of, it's, I, and we're only like about three weeks into the year, you know, so, so we'll see what happens the rest of the year. It really is kind of alarming. Ufrida, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. The column is called Chinese in Essay Flexing Muscles. Not her title, by the way, an editor's title, but you can find it in the uh, January 13th edition of Times Live, and that's at timeslive.co.za, or ZA as we say in America. 
Uh, it is a fascinating kind of explanation and a look into the power of the Chinese community and the role that they're playing in, in light of this, again, this really controversial trip that the Pretoria mayor took uh, privately to Taiwan, but at the same time, you know, took a stick and shook up uh, the one ch the one China policy at the same time while he was, as Frida said, trying to put a middle finger up at Jacob Zuma and the ANC. Frida, you know, thank you so much for joining us. It's an excellent piece of reporting, and we hope to have you back on the show again to follow up on how things are going. Thank you, Eric. And for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.